This week, we're spending a day with John Paul DeJoria, billionaire philanthropist and businessman, best known as co-founder of John Paul Mitchell Systems and the Patron Spirits Company. An inductee of the Sturgis Motorcycle Museum Hall of Fame, DeJoria invites us to his Austin home to talk about his success and the struggles to get there. You know, I've got a little kid here. What money I had isn't there anymore. I was terrible. I felt terrible. The entrepreneur has since used his massive wealth to sponsor sports teams and further countless charitable causes. All that's coming up right here on the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Um, so I wanted to start um, with talking about sports, and then I'll get into sure. companies and your business and life, and uh, go from there. But um, first, sports. Uh, Motorcycles. Yes. What do you enjoy about them? Motorcycles give a certain amount of freedom to you. When you sit on a motorcycle and you take off, it's you, the power beneath you, and an open road. There's nothing around you. So in a motorized vehicle, it's as close as you could get to the planet and being grounded. Also, when you're a motorcycle and the air is blowing in your face and you see nature all around you and you just realize that we are on an incredible, magical planet. And I feel that way every time I ride my motorcycle, whether it's for a short distance or long distance. Uh, how, how many do you have and what are some of your favorites? I have quite a few motorcycles. Uh, Right here at this house, I have three of them. My favorite is probably uh, my rigid frame. I have a rigid frame, uh, kind of a low rider, you might call it. It's one of my favorite. I think my second favorite uh, would probably be uh, one of my uh, uh, Indian motorcycles or one of my custom Harleys. And I understand you have a pretty good deal where uh, you're given a new Indian uh, every six months or Yeah, so, it's right? really cool. I get to ride a new Indian motorcycle every six months. They train them out for me. Uh, I, I rode it in Sturgis a couple of years ago when the new company took over and they made the, the new Indians. And it was such a beautiful, nice motorcycle that I decided that uh, this is just nothing but cool. They said, would you ride it all the time? We gave you one. I said, sure, why not? You know, and they did. So I ride it quite a bit. So what led to your uh, son-in-law, Jesse James, making a custom bike for you? Well, Jesse, obviously my son-in-law, is the best motorcycle maker in the world, and he couldn't possibly have me not have a custom motorcycle, so they made me a custom motorcycle, which, by the way, is right now being tweaked out in his shop right now. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesse's super cool. Hell's Angels. Um, explain how, way back when, you wound up part of them. Right. Well, back in my early 20s, I was kind of down and out. Actually, I was homeless. I had a friend, Lee Meyer. Lee and I went to junior high school together, high school together, and kept in touch after I got out of the Navy. And I was homeless and ran across Lee, and he found out about it. And he said, JP, I have an extra room in my house. You're coming to live with me. I know you're working, so no problem. We'll get some of our biker mamas to help take care of your son while you go to work. And it was a community of Hell's Angels and Satan Slaves in the San Fernando Valley at the time. So uh, I would go riding with those guys all the time. They helped me put together an old 1938 motorcycle, kind of a flathead, which is an old style engine, by the way, on motorcycles. And uh, I rode with them. It was, it was pretty cool. They, they were good guys. Now, they were different in those days, completely different. A lot of people looked at them as bullies and drug dealers, and maybe some of them were bullies and drug dealers. They were, okay? But today's Hell's Angels are a lot different. I was just with them two weeks ago on a toy drive. They went out and raised money and took their own money and bought toys for children whose parent or parents are in jail. 
and went and delivered them. It's a whole new organization. They're still badasses. You don't want to mess <laughs> with these guys, right? But they won't mess with you. I'm sure there's an exception somewhere in the world of a few bullies, but very, very few. They're really hardcore bikers. They're cool people. You don't mess with them. They won't mess with you. But uh, they care about others, especially children. And that's some, a side of Hell's Angels people just don't see. What were some of the things you saw back then? Um, you mentioned they've changed over the years, but um, back then some of the more challenging things that you saw when you were involved? Well, many, many years ago, this was going back to the 1960s, okay? It was a little different group. We would hang out, for example, at Griffith Park. People would get in fights. Uh, they'd have one group over here, and you don't look at wrong into that group, or they'll come over and, you know, clobber you. I mean, it was just it was a little different scene. It was more of an action-fighting type scene, not all the time, but quite a bit. They had, you know, certain rules, regulations that they, had, that they followed. Someone would agree with, someone wouldn't agree with. Uh, I think the one that bikers agreed with was you got on your motorcycle and you ride and you ride fast and they did and it was pretty cool it was also kind of a unique one and they don't do that much these days a little bit they do where there's a hundred motorcycles on the road or more and at that time it was a mixture mostly uh, hell's angels some saint slaves they got along really really well and uh, and you're part of a pack going down the highway and you don't have to be a member if they liked you could ride with them they, they liked me i i didn't have to join the club uh, because i couldn't even if i wanted to in those days you had to go to church every week. Church, by the way, was a meeting. It wasn't like we go to you know, church okay. across that. It was a meeting. And I couldn't do it. I was working at a, a child of support, so I couldn't do that. But they liked me anyway, so we hung out. The Mexican bobsled Olympic team. Yeah. How did your involvement in it come about? My sports marketing department said, JP, I met these guys in Dallas that are from Mexico that are part of the Mexican bobsled team. There's four guys. They have zero sponsor. No one wants to sponsor these guys. And they got a good chance to go to the Winter Olympics. So I thought, what the heck? I've been down and out before. No one wanted to sponsor me on anything. I'll sponsor these guys. And we did. And they got good enough to make it to the Winter Olympics in, uh, in Utah. Oh, it was wonderful. Well, they wanted to thank me. So the way they thanked me was they gave me a uniform and a jacket, an Olympic uniform and jacket, and maybe their coach. And my wife, they made their physical therapist. And in the opening ceremony, we were in the opening ceremony with the team. There was only seven people, two gringos, you know, and it was always oh, fabulous. And the boys did good. I believe there were 38 teams competing, and I think they, they turned out to be number 34. So they weren't the worst in the world. They were one of the best in the world. They were the top 34 in the world. They were just great guys. I believe it was 2 billion people watching on TV. And I can remember just feeling like I was a great athlete, part of this team here. I was just shining away. And I, I felt like just like a million dollars. And because we were part of the team, we got to go into the Olympic Village, which is very exciting. We were on top of the hill with the team as they took off and met many other athletes. And I've got to say, athletes are some of the coolest people on the planet. Take me back to your days as a gymnast. In high school, in the 11th grade, I wanted to do something after school. I didn't go to work till four o'clock. So your last period could be uh, a sport. I took up gymnastics. I just thought it was cool. At first I tried to climb a rope and maybe I'd go two hands and that's the extent of it. Then I saw this thing called a pommel horse, a side horse, that I thought was really cool. People swing around, it was difficult. So I started working at that and working at it and working at it and uh, by the end of my first year I made the, the varsity team. Uh, and it really gets you fit gymnastics. 
gymnastics gets you very, very, very fit. So I stayed in gymnastics throughout high school, and I think it had a lot to do with conditioning my body, because my body bounces back real fast right now, and I work out very, very little. But what little I work out, it just bounces back like that. I trace it back to my gymnastics days. Uh, Paul Mitchell uh, Karate, yes. um, long-running, successful program. How did you get involved with that? Well, a friend of mine introduced me to Steve Babcock, who wanted to put together in Rhode Island a national karate team. And I thought it was one of the greatest sports to get into. One, it gets kids off the street. It teaches them how to be extremely confident with themselves. It doesn't teach them how to be bullies. In other words, they'll walk away from a fight if they can. That's how they're taught and not fight. But if they're against a wall, they know they're gonna come out okay and not be hurt. Well, it raises the confidence of men and women, boys and girls, just raises their confidence. They feel more confident, they're more centered, and they have something to get involved in that they're more proficient. And they get various belts as they go up. I thought it was a great thing. We've been sponsoring uh, karate right now for 30 years. I believe out of the last 30 years, our team has won the national and maybe the world championship, the national for sure, at least 24, 25 times, and maybe the world championship uh, a dozen times too. Uh, They're good. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I want to take you back to your younger days. You're 22 years old, have a young kid, and how do you find out your wife's walking out? Well, I didn't find out till I got home. I got home one day, I was, I was working over the weekend in this one job as an announcer for the second annual sports, vacation, and recreational vehicle show in Anaheim, California. I get home and as I'm going, we have one car. As I'm going up the steps, we are second level apartment, my wife's coming down and she says, I'm going to the store, can I have the keys? Sure, gave her the keys, right? And she got in the car and took off. Well, by the time I got to the door, she was in the car starting and going out the driveway. Opened the door and all of a sudden, surprise, there's my two and a half year old son sitting on the floor in a bunch of clothes and there's a note. Can't handle it anymore, better off with you, good luck, I'm gone. And unbeknownst to me, for three months, she didn't pay any of the bills. No utility, no rent. She would keep the money and rip up the bills. She picked up the mail, I never did. So I didn't know we were posed for eviction and our, our electricity being turned off, I had no idea. But that's how it turned out. What little we had in the bank was gone. How'd you handle it? As soon as I realized what the world was going on, no money, no nothing, but with little change in my pocket, I cried. I was just so heartbroken. How am I gonna do this? You know, I've got a little kid here. I'm in between jobs. What money I had isn't there anymore. And then obviously I started you know, realizing we we're being evicted the next day and it was just, oh, it felt terrible. But when you're that down, you look at going up. You can't sit there and feel sorry for yourself because if you do, you're gonna stay there and stay there and stay there. My first thought was a car. So I go out of a car and on loan that was an old Cadillac, 1951 Cadillac that hadn't been running for years, had a broken water pump. And I got it from this wonderful lady and I filled it up with water every four hours, got the thing going. I had auto shop in high school, so I knew how to get the thing going again. And that was my vehicle. It was also my home for a while. And then to get money, I went into vacant lots picking up Coke bottles and soda pops, 7-Up bottles, root beer, anything. In those days, it was mandatory. Grocery stores and liquor stores would give you two cents for a little one, five cents for a big one. And that's how we started getting money to live and eat. Describe what being homeless is like. 
Well, being homeless sucks, okay? I mean, you know, you're looking for a place to, you know, and especially with a child, it's just not a good thing. But you improvise. Uh, I learned that when you sleep in a car, my son slept in the back seat, but when you sleep in the front seat, which has more room, your head goes below the steering wheel because at night you flip over. Well, your head is that big. Your body's that big. So if your head's under the steering wheel, it's easier to flip over. So you learn little tricks along the way. What I didn't get about this was you had the ability, if you wanted to, ask friends for help uh, or ask your mom yeah, I could ask for my help. Mom. Um, why decide against that, especially when you had a young kid? It was one of the stupidest times in my life when I was homeless and didn't go to my mom. I lived in LA, say, Mom, could I have my own room back? It's got still two twin beds. My son and I feed me. She would have loved that. When she found I was homeless, oh, she was just, she was beside herself. I mean, she just went berserk. She could not believe I didn't go home. But she didn't know till years later what had happened. I was too proud. It was stupid. I didn't want to tell any of my friends either. I was too proud. What conversations have you had since then with the wife that walked out? Well, she came back when my son was eight years old to try and be a mom again. That didn't work out too good, so I got him back a couple of years later. And uh, I saw her, I ran into her, her name is Bella. I ran into her, oh, several months ago. Her daughter had died, and uh, it was a pleasant conversation. And she knows that she was wrong, and she felt very, very bad about it. But it was too late. The second time you were homeless, uh, how did you go about eating and showering? Well, the second time I was homeless was a lot easier because I had been homeless before. I had a friend of mine, this young lady lived down the street. I told her what happened. She said, I'll take care of John Jr. He could stay here with me for you know weeks, JP, as long as it takes you to get another place to live. No problem, I'll take care of that. And then uh, I had a few hundred dollars in my pocket anyways. So I learned how to go to the Freeway Cafe for 99 cents for breakfast, go to El Torito after 4.30 at happy hour. They just started happy hour. They invented happy hour. We're 99 cent margaritas, and it wasn't Patron, I assure you, but it was still a margarita for 99 cents. But you got all these little chicken wings or tostadas or salsa with it. Well, that was dinner. Worked out pretty good. Griffith Park had showers, which I remember from my youth down there, uh, where they had the tennis court. So I went down there and showered. That was my shower. No problem. You said before, quote, the only difference between unsuccessful people and successful people is that successful people do all the things unsuccessful people don't want to do. Elaborate on that. You betcha. When you're down and out, or you get a lot of failure in life, or you're fired by somebody, or you're rejected, well, you could say, I've been rejected. Oh, no, what am I going to do now? Or go back to what I learned selling encyclopedias, door to door. You knock on 50 doors, they're closing your face. You're just as enthusiastic on door number 51 as you were on the first 50 doors closing your face. In other words, you do what normal people wouldn't do. Successful people do all the things unsuccessful people don't want to do. I say these to athletes, whether they're involved in our volleyball program, martial arts, racing, whatever, that you can have failures, you can lose a race, you can do all kinds of things that aren't happening. But the ones that succeed are the ones that say, no matter what happened, I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna be just as enthusiastic, give it every single thing I can, every time I go out there. My daughter Alexis is a great example of this. She was in three major wrecks 
in top fuel, two in top fuel and one in alcohol funny car. Major wrecks, concussions, everything walked away from them. And one of them, she couldn't go back racing for five weeks. The concussions were so bad. But she got on there, went back and raced, and won. She knew that it's not going to get her down. Successful people do the things the unsuccessful people don't want to do. And by the way, the word success isn't how much money you have. It's not what power you have, what position you have. Success is how well you do what you do on a regular basis and keep on trying to improve. You've also said before, quote, I'm able to do fewer things, the philosophy being pay attention to the vital few, ignore the trivial many. Explain that. You bet. It's one of the reasons I don't have email. I don't even turn a computer on because there's so much trivia that goes across it. If I had email, I'd be inundated. I'd be on that computer all day long because I just do too many things. So I found in life, you know, especially with all the companies I have and all the charities that I have, I'd be going nuts. So one learns how to hone in and pay attention to those things that are vital that I could contribute to. And things that I might consider trivia to others are very important, but someone else could do better than me. But in my life, there's certain things I do really well. That's what I call pay attention to the vital few. What can I do really, really well? And consider everything else trivia if I can't do it really, really well and can find somebody else to do it or don't pay attention to it at all. In what ways did you learn to adapt as your companies were growing? Well, I'll give you an example of what I did was incorporated everything into my lifestyle. I think the best example I'd like to give was about 10 years ago. I'm in South Africa. I go there for a photo shoot. My wife and my son are with me for the photo shoot. I land in Johannesburg and I have a meeting with Nelson Mandela. We're involved together in one of our programs that we're eliminating landmines and getting rid of AIDS in Africa. I worked with him very closely. He was a friend of mine. My son was there. My wife was there. We went right into the bush and did a photo shoot in the bush with photographers. We brought in the orphans from my Food for Africa, some of the 8,000 we feed every single day, all day, ages 1 to 12 years old. They became part of the photo shoot. So I got to see some of my kids there. Went and did a beauty show with Paul Mitchell in Johannesburg afterwards. Then from Johannesburg, I went to Durban, and I did a Patron show there and another beauty show. And at that time, my son was just turning... I believe eight years old, maybe nine. We went south of Durban and at a birthday party for him at a friend's house in Africa. Half the kids didn't speak a word of English. They were all tribal children, right? Didn't speak any English whatsoever, but they all got along with slingshots and BB guns. So it was great. So we kind of incorporated everything into one. Get it all done at the same time. Family, friends, business, and philanthropy. What was the culture you were trying to create with your business? and? How difficult is it to maintain that as um, you have less of a presence at the actual office these days? I started a culture of fewer moving parts, mainly because I didn't have any choice. We didn't have any money. <laughs> so at Paul Mitchell, for the first six months, it was me doing everything and my partner, Paul, doing hair shows because he wasn't a businessman. After six months, I hired Shirley Wong. Surely we can afford to hire a person. It's you. You're not going to get a lot of money, but you're going to have 10 jobs because that's all we could do. So Shirley did all 10 jobs great. She was wonderful. How would you go about identifying the successful multitaskers in interviews? You never know in an interview what the end result is. My suggestion to people, whether it's in sports or business, is you can never, ever be faulted for who you hire. 
You can only be faulted for who you don't fire. So what I do when I interview people, and of course my staff does it now, is of course we'll look at a resume, but you can make up a resume in many areas. We look at how we feel about the energy of the person. We look at the person, we look them in the eye. We get a feeling for what they're really all about. And as they're talking to you, you try and look between the lines. You know, like, what is this person really all about? We look for enthusiastic people, people we think have a heart, and people that we would think would be want to be part of our culture. How do you attract the best talent? Well, it's hard to attract the best talent for us at Paul Mitchell and Patron, mainly because nobody wants to leave. In the last 30, almost 38 years with Paul Mitchell, we're in over 100 countries. Our turnover has been less than 100 people. No one wants to leave. Why do you think that is? We take good care of our people. I don't have what you call middle management. I don't have supervisor watching people watching people. People have a responsibility and they own it. That's yours, you own it, this is your responsibility. The end result is up to you. Now, not everybody is ideal for a position. Sometimes we move them from one position to another to see if it works out, and if it works out, it works out. Occasionally it doesn't work out, and we have to let somebody go. How do you go about managing people? For me, it's quite easy to manage people because I have the best managers in the world. And the ones that are there managing people are people that are, know that we like to manage people with love and happiness and give them the opportunity. We don't want to bring someone in to reprimand them and make them feel bad. We want to bring somebody in behind closed doors, tell them what they did wrong, how to do it right. Sometimes they don't know how to do it right. And then before they leave, tell them something they do already really, really good that we appreciate. So by the time they leave, they know we really know what they do really well. This, yeah, maybe they could do a little bit better here. And it makes people feel good and part of the whole group. Uh, so and we give them free lunch. There you go. Everybody gets free lunch. So you met Paul Mitchell in 1971 at a Miami hair show. Um, what was it about that interaction that made you guys just click? We had a friend, a mutual friend named Eva Prang, who I really respected a lot. And she would say, you gotta meet Paul Mitchell. I heard of him before as a great hairdresser. And uh, we just met. And for some reason, we just hit it off. We had lunch together uh, in the years to come. If he was doing a beauty show and I was somewhere around, we'd say hello. About every other year, I'd go visit him in Hawaii. Nine years after I first met Paul, he was trying to come out with a product line called PM, where it was a couple of shampoos and a conditioning treatment. and. Uh, it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, he bought very little of it because he didn't have any money, and he overpaid for it, and the product didn't repeat on its own. When he got up there on stage to try and sell it, it would sell. He was really, really good on stage, but there was no repeat business. I said, Paul, one, the product could be a lot better, and number two, you have no business, no infrastructure, no nothing. All you've done is lost a lot of money. I said, Paul, let's do this. I know the business, the sales, the marketing, and, and a little bit about formulation, but I have pals that'll help us formulate. How about we do this? Let's start a company. You own 30%, I own 30%, and we give 40% to somebody that'll invest a half a million dollars in us. We need a half a million bucks to start this company. Great idea, JP, let's do it. So we started designing the packaging and everything. I got my friends to work on formulations for me. And of course, uh, the money never came in. So we started with $700. So when all of a sudden the investor who you were planning on putting in a half a million dollars at the last minute backs out, how do you handle that? 
Oh, first of all, total disappointment. Paul was on an airplane over from Hawaii because he was out of money. He wanted some money too. And uh, I had just left my relationship and I had a car, I had the older car, but I had a car and uh, went down the street there, you know, to get some money, I had a few hundred bucks in my pocket, left all the money, because I was making really good money at the time. With my ex-wife, because we had a daughter together, left her the house and everything to live in at that time. So they're okay for months, right? Hey, there's half a million bucks down the street. There was nothing. <laughs> So I was like, oh no, and then Paul arrived. Paul, the money hasn't come in yet. Well, maybe it's a day late. And uh, I was run down by a friend of mine who told me that the backer pulled out. And he said, JP, I know it's last minute. He never invested a dime in it. Last minute change, but now this is January, February, 1980. Inflation in the United States, 12.5%. Unemployment, 10.5% in 80 and 81. Interest rates, if you could get a loan, prime rate was 17% and our hostages were still in Iran. Can you imagine? So the guy says, you can't really you know, invest in the United States now, it's just, it's just not right. You're starting a company with $700 when you're expecting to have uh, half a million, you have this yeah. you know, uh, famous hairstylist as a partner that you know, was counting on you to deliver this investor sure. and you know, the, the Pressure's on, obviously, but what was the lowest point? You asked me a question no one's ever asked me yet. Very good, okay? The lowest point was telling Paul when he came over and when I found out, Paul, there's no money. How much money do you have in your pocket? He says, well, I could afford an extra 350 bucks, JP. That's it. And we're starting to come, we have, yeah, I left everything I did, no money. And the light came on, wait a minute, I've been here before, but I've got a couple hundred dollars in my pocket. I've got a car. I can stay in my car for now. I'll park on Mulholland Drive. And I went to my mom and I said, Mom, can I borrow $350? Her reaction was, why? You make big money. I said, Mom, I'm doing something new. I'll tell you about it later. I'll give it to you at the end of the month. Okay, she gave it to me. Well, little did she know at the time that, you know, so I started the company. And then I would call up the guy who had the bottles. And I'd say, instead of 100,000 bottles, can I have 10,000 bottles of sample run? Oh, sure, JP, no problem. Everybody thought we had the backer and everything because we told them about it. Right. And all our bills were to be paid in 30 days. So right. we scrambled out there to get it going. It was low, but I bounced right out of it. What was the closest you ever came to giving up? Every week for probably two years, we should have given up because we had little to no money and could never pay our bills on time, but didn't. But was that ever actually going through your head? Like, is this worth it? Should, should I, I keep going? Or even though it was tough, you were kind of unrelenting and your commitment to driving forward? The only thought in my head, even though we couldn't pay our bills on time for almost two years, was our product is so darn good. Hairdressers love it. They know a good product. We have no money for advertising and promotion, but if we could get in enough hairdressers' hands, and it was one hairdressing salon at a time, they realize how good it is, want to use it, and recommend it to their family for in-between visit use. We thought, oh my God, is that fabulous. Let's get in hairdressers' hands as much as possible. And we told hairdressers, by gosh, we'll always stay in the professional hair care industry. So even today, if you ever find a Paul Mitchell product on a grocery store shelf or a drugstore shelf, all of it is either counterfeit or from what they call the gray black market or diversion. We don't put it there. We stay only by hairdressers. They supported us when no one believed in us. Uh, how long were you having to repeatedly tell people 
the checks in the mail? Oh my gosh, for two whole years. And then we got really good at it. They wouldn't believe the checks in the mail anymore because it never was in the mail, right? They wouldn't get it for days and they checked the postmark. It was like, hey, you know, I've been late before, but I'm coming. It's another day and a half, but you know I'll be there. And I would personally deliver it to them, you know. And uh, a, a lot of my time was spent just delivering checks, but most of the vendors were in L.A. And that's where I was at the time in Los Angeles. So why did you go about putting on these expensive shows at the time that, as I understand it, were kind of all smoke and mirrors? Well, we had to make a statement, especially for those that started to buy our product. So I realized that through working through other shows, I could get for very little down a nice, beautiful room in a hotel, like a ballroom, on the days it wasn't being used really cheap, which was usually at noon and on a Sunday, nobody was booking it. So I went to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA, very nice hotel, and got the big room really inexpensively. And Paul and I and friends of ours, went to every salon imaginable and gave them all invitations to go to our show. And we had a stack of books and products there to sell. I had a friend of mine uh, that was wonderful, Marianne, and she gave us some flowers, so it looked really, really neat. Right? Just call on friends to help out there. And I, I rented a tuxedo. I think in those days it cost like $15 to rent one for one day. And we looked like a million dollars, right? And Paul and I were all dressed up there. and We just looked like we were just on top of the world. However, and what little catering we had was another friend of mine that pitched it in. But we had to sell product and what books we had at that show in order to get out of the show to finish paying the bill. And that's how we pulled that one off. So that was one good one. So we improvised. But starting out, we did that one major show and uh, it was kind of smoke and mirrors, but it looked really good. So uh, explain why the now famous black and white packaging. Well, we're black and white bottles now because we had all of our artwork done. We had it done in black and white and then a little extra add color to it. However, the silk screener to silk screen color on wanted seven cents. Black and white was only two cents a run. We were very limited. Even though the bill would be due within 30 days, we were very limited. So we just went for what's the cheapest. Well, as it turned out, black and white became unisex. So that was a good decision, even though we did it because we were desperate. <laughs> How key do you think was promising that unsold products could be returned for a complete refund? We felt that our product was so good that if you used it, you would want it and you'd want to continue using it. We were that confident. So we told all the hairdressers that we sold our product to. This product is so good that if you use it within 30 days, if you're not completely satisfied, happy as can be, and your customers too, we will refund your money. In the first five years, and this one I kept track of it, to the best of my knowledge, only two bottles were ever returned. That was it. Really? That was it. Two. Wow. Being only in salons has been one thing that's been consistent from day one yeah. with John Paul Mitchell's systems. Why have you continued to maintain that? Well, as most people know, most companies that go in the beauty industry, professional beauty industry, say, I'm going to stay only in salons, not go anywhere else, okay? That's where I'm going to stay. And all of a sudden, you see them in department stores, grocery stores, every place else. It's because that's what they said to get in the industry. But afterwards, well, they wanted the money, and then they blamed on somebody else. Mine was when I had absolutely nothing. You guys believed me that I would stay in the industry. I will never let you down. I'd probably be four times my size now if I went to the full general market. But worldwide, worldwide wide. All of our distributors are contracted only to sell to beauty salons. Four times your size, meaning 
four times oh, size. more oh, gosh, financially yes. successful? Financially, be four times my size, maybe more, who knows? Be and that's why you see Paul Mitchell sometimes in drugstores and supermarkets. They buy it that when it's counterfeit, they say, well, we didn't know it was counterfeit. Maybe they didn't. When it's black market, diverted, gray market, they buy it because the demand is there. If they have Paul Mitchell on the shelf, even if they charge $2 more, people buy because they don't know what Paul Mitchell sells for. They just know it's a high-end product. Oh my God, if I opened up the floodgates, we'd be four times our size overnight. But I would have broken my promise when I had absolutely nothing and people believed in me. So ethically, I stuck by him. By the way, I put Paul Mitchell into a 360-year trust. I own the majority of the company, so even if I die, no one could take it out of the professional beauty industry for 360 years. And why, why was it important to you to do that? It was that? important to me to do something like this because back in 2004, a young hairdresser in the audience raised her hand and said, JP, everyone sold out or went to other departments of distribution other than you. What happens if you die? I thought, ooh, good question. So I went looking around for a trust, and I found one that would last 360 years. So I now have 340 some odd years left on it. So that means it can't get sold to a big conglomerate. If I die, nobody could sell Paul Mitchell. They couldn't sell, the, I own the majority of the company, they couldn't sell it. It must stay in the professional beauty industry. And a major conglomerate that wanted to buy Paul Mitchell, sure as all heck would not buy it with the condition and the contract, you can never take it out of the professional beauty industry. They wouldn't do it, because they'd buy it because they know if they would mass retail, they'd get all their money back probably in a year or two. Why would you go on sales calls with some of the new salespeople that you would hire? As we started out, the only way we could sell was to go with a potential distributor in the field with their salesmen, and they would watch me give a presentation, how to hold the bottle, how to talk to people, how to sell the product, and I would, in the afternoon, have them give half the presentation. By the end of the day, they knew the presentation. It was our way of teaching salesmen what to do when you're gone, because in those days, with the exception of maybe five uh, distributors, they sold 20, 30, 40 different lines. We wanted them to sell our line, our few products. The only way to do is get in the field with them and show them how to do it. What was your pitch? Now in the early days, we only had three products our first two months. Two shampoos and one conditioner. So I said, I'd tell you about something brand new. One, I'd hold it like a gym, not like this, okay? I hold it like a gym. This is shampoo one that we've developed. Shampoo One is for normal to color treated or fine hair. What's unique about this shampoo, you only need one shampoo, not two. That saves you time and money. We test all these products on ourselves, not on animals. This is Shampoo Two. Shampoo Two is for normal to greasy hair, oily hair, or really, really thick hair. Once again, you only need one shampoo, not two. Saves you time and money. This is the most unique thing we have. It's called the conditioner. Let me show you how it works. Then I would put a size of a dime on my hand. I say, can I have your hand, please? I put a size of a dime in their hand. Now, you got the size of a dime in your hand, right? But you don't know what to do with it. Watch, okay. Here, I want you to tell you about the conditioner. This is very unique. Now, I've got your attention because it's in your hand. You know what to do with right. it. This product is a moisture treatment, a protein treatment, nucleic acid treatment. When you cut someone's hair, you put it on first, right? So you don't have to be in the back basin for 10 minutes waiting for the conditioner to take effect. It's a leave-in conditioner. But when you put on the customer's hair, you cut it easier and more even because it moisturizes it. If you blow dry the hair, it helps prevent heat damage. 
and it makes the hair shine. It's a combination of many, many things. This product, by the way, depending on the length of the hair, uh, there's anywhere from 150 to 200 treatments in this bottle. Oh, by the way, and I set it down, right? By the way, rub it in your hands. Now they know what to do. It also helps neutralize all the chemicals when you put it in your hands. It smells pretty good, right? You put it in your face. In other words, it's left on. It saves you time, money, and energy. These products are so unique and save you time and money that here's what I'd like to offer you. If you would agree to buy two dozen of shampoo one, if you'd agree to buy two dozen of shampoo two, third one, if you'll agree to buy two dozen of the conditioner, two dozen of each, what we will do in return is we will come in your salon, we will put a bottle at every station, we'll put a couple of 32 ounces at the back basin, we'll display it at eye level so people can see it, I'll show your people how to introduce to their customers as a benefit of being in your salon, but I'll, and I'll teach them how to use it. But I'll give you this guarantee, if in 30 days it's not the best product you've ever used and you don't love it, I will come back and take every bottle off the shelf you haven't used or sold out the door and give you your money back. Now that's fair enough, isn't it? <laughs> Say no. That's fair <laughs> enough, isn't it? No, I just, I got too much stuff here. Which is what most people told us, okay? We would say, I could appreciate that. You're right. You do have a lot of stuff here. You have every good reason. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you will let me come in and hold a class for your people, all right? Display it at eye level, show everyone how to use it, maybe put a quart each at the back basin. Here's what I'll do. I will place in your salon only one dozen shampoo one, one dozen shampoo two, one dozen shampoo three, just a couple quarts of the conditioner and the shampoo, that's all. And if at the end of the month, it's not the hottest thing you've ever seen, I'll give you your money back for every bottle you haven't used or sold out the door. Now that's fair enough, isn't it? I look at him, nod my head, say no again. Remember, successful people do all the things unsuccessful people don't want to do. Say no again. Sounds fair, I just, I don't want to do it. Okay, well, you know, I can appreciate it. We're something new, who knows, right? But I'll tell you what I'll do. Because I know it's gonna be so good for you, there's no doubt. If you'll agree to only take six of these each, and just one quart is your back basin of shampoo, one shampoo, two in the conditioner, and just, since you have three operators, just put three on the shelf of each, I'll hold a class. If in one month, those few products they gave you are the hottest things you want, I'll take every bottle back you haven't used or sold out the door and give you your money back. And by the way, this is only gonna stay in the beauty industry. Is that fair enough? That's fair enough. I got down to once one bottle of each before someone said no. A lot of people say no, right? Right. But you know, I, I give them three chances to say no. And, and I had a couple just break out total laughter when I got down to six and down to two bottles. They just break it. I'll take a dozen each, you know, but you better come back. And we did. What's the earliest job you ever remember having? I remember every job I've ever had. First job I had where I got paid for was seven years old. And I were at the Variety Boys Club, my brother and I made a flower box. We went around selling it. Made it for a quarter, sold it for 50 cents. The first month after month paycheck I ever got was at 11 years old for the LA Examiner. It was a big morning newspaper at the time. We delivered newspapers and we made anywhere from 30 to $33 a month. And not only deliver newspapers, you had the opportunity to pitch people for subscriptions. New on subscriptions, occasion, right? you got a dollar each. I got a new subscriber, I got a dollar each. What do you remember from the, the pitch? 
that oh, you would I, give. I remember every one of my presentations beautifully. When it was newspapers, we would go around when we weren't delivering newspapers, obviously in the evening or on Saturdays when people were there. And we'd have the Sunday issue of the LA Examiner with us and I'd hold it there. And I would say, and here we have the living section, and here's our cartoons, and here's our business section, something for everybody, and of course, the finest headlines. And when you're done with it, feel the weight of this. That's a lot of paper to light your fireplace with, help with your cats, with your dogs, but it's a wealth of information. And we could deliver this every single Sunday for only $2.50 a month. How did uh, selling encyclopedias teach you about rejection? Selling encyclopedias, you, you learn a lot. Uh, I think the average encyclopedia salesman lasted two or three days. But I believed what they told me. And they said, you have to knock on a lot of doors. If you knock on a lot of doors, you're going to make a lot of money. And a lot of doors will be closing your face. But you have to be just as enthusiastic on the next door, especially with this presentation we gave you. You know it by heart now. You've been studying for one week. You've made no money. Commissions are out there. Go get them, boys. And I believed him. So day after day, I'd knock on doors, nobody would buy anything from me. Eventually, I made a sale. And what was it about that skill, though, that has made you say before, if that job existed, you'd want to have had your kids do it? I'd make all my kids do it for at least three months if it existed. It teaches you how to talk to people, how to overcome rejection, and still be positive with the next door. And that's a good lesson for all people to learn. Why did you once get fired for making more money than your boss? Well, that was at Tri. The Institute of Tri College was a product company, and uh, Ken Snow, one of the owners, came to me one day and said, JP, we have to let you go. We have this guy named David Chapman that could do your job for one-third the money. And I said, but why? Uh, you know, we've tripled our sales this last year, and you're only paying me $3,000 a month. And this was back in... Uh, Oh God, uh, around 1977, I believe, 78, right around that time. So he said, well, JP, you only made 3,000 a month, but you had a percentage of all that new business. I said, yeah, but it's new business for you forever. He goes, yeah. Well, that's what got you. That new business, your check was so big. I said, but guys, your business is three times the size and I don't own any part of it, you do. How about you guys reduce the pay a little bit but not a lot because I got to live. And maybe I could pay over a period of time and own 10% of your business. No, nope, we can never do that. David's going to do a good job and uh, they let me go. Well, just to give you a little follow-up, several years later, I got a call from the owner of the company, Joe. He said, JP, how about I give you half the company and come and run it like you're doing Paul Mitchell? I said, no. I said, I'm with Paul Mitchell now. It's my company with Paul. We own 50-50. At that time, we were 50-50 partners. And uh, no, but, but thanks anyways. How did you go about finding Patron? Patron started back in end of 1988, beginning of 1989. I had this fellow who was a friend of mine named Martin Crowley go down to Mexico. Martin had gone bankrupt. He was in the hospitality business, so I staked him. And we went to the architectural business, furniture architectural business together. I said, Martin, why don't you go down on your next trip to Mexico? Because we were drinking some tequila at that time. But you had to hold your breath, that type of tequila. I said, why don't you go to Mexico, see what the aristocrats drink, bring back a couple bottles. He went down there shopping for stuff and then came back with a couple of these just trim, you know, ordinary bottles. But it was pretty smooth tequila, smooth than anything I ever had. And Martin said, JP, I met a guy down there named Francisco Alcarez. He's like the chef of all chefs of tequila. 
He said he can make this smoother. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, if he can make it smoother, let's try going into the business. I'll order a thousand cases, which is 12,000 bottles. And uh, we found this beautiful bottle that we would make out of recycled glass, which is a Patron bottle today. And we'd make it out of recycled glass. And hey, uh, it was expensive. If it didn't sell, well, for the next 10 years, everybody I knew we'd have gifts for it because it's the right. best there is with great pride. Okay, JP, let's try it. Nobody would take us on at first. No one would distribute it because it was $37 a bottle where the normal tequila then was four or five bucks a bottle, right. most expensive, 14 or 15. So we finally talked a wine company that only sold wine into taking it. And uh, they did a couple thousand cases a year and uh, that didn't do too good. So we took on another distributor, Jim Beam, a big one. And they would distribute for us to everybody. Jim Beam came to us one day when we said, guys, we got to sell 30, 40, 50,000 cases. They said, boys, let's tell you like it is. You have the best tequila in the world, but it's too expensive. That's why we only have 12,000 in sales in, in cases nationwide. Guys, you'll never do more than 20,000 cases. We dropped them, took on Seagram's. Seagram's took us to 70,000 cases and did a good job, I must say. We got into a lawsuit with them and we had to pay them some money, but we got our distribution back. And the company that was never supposed to do more than 20,000 cases a year, uh, this year I think we do about 3,300,000 cases with all the brands of Patron that we have. Okay, here, here's what I don't get though. So you try this tequila that you know your buddy brings back. You like it. He knows somebody else who could make it smoother. Met this guy, yeah. Um, and so off of that you decide let's I taste it, it was great. I figured this is going to take off like wildfire because the world is ready for high-end tequila. We, we didn't have them at that time, no premium tequilas. And I was just setting the world on fire. Plus, when I would go out and pitch it, I would make sales. Right. For example, Wolfgang Puck, friend of mine, Wolf, JP, this is really good. Will you carry it? Of course, JP, I'll carry it. And give it to, and here's some extra cases to give to your celebrity friends. Martin went to the Baja Cantina. I went going bar to bar. And for two, three dollars, I'd buy someone a shot of tequila. You could do that in California at the time, right? And then I'd break out Patron, give them a little bit of it. They'd go, what is this? That's the future of tequila. So a lot of it was done door-to-door -door sales that we started. And then I did a big Paul Mitchell event once, brought everybody to a game, all free Patron. They loved it, went home and asked for it. How did uh, actor Clint Eastwood impact Patron? Well, Clint was a friend of mine, and I would, you know, give him Patron tequila. He really lied. He said, JB, this is pretty good stuff. And then one day he calls me up, and this is 1991, maybe 92. It's after I'd started Patron. He says, JP, come to the premiere of my new movie. Then I went down. He said, I have a surprise for you. And he didn't tell me what it was, but when I watched the movie, I saw the surprise. All he did was drink Patron tequila in there. That was the only thing he drank. Uh, and it was obvious as can be. It was a surprise, just a surprise. just a real good guy wanted to do something nice for a friend. And then shortly after he wrote this major article where he was asked, you know, what do you drink? And uh, he said, fine red wine and a little Patron tequila. He's a good guy. I, I, I still send Clint every year Patron tequila, all of our new ones. I, I take care of with tequila. He's a good guy. He's a good man. So the price point was $37 when it first came out. Yeah. Next highest was 14 Average was 4 or $5, as you said, for tequila then. So what's the reaction of people that you're pitching to buy Patron at the time, given the price Once point? Once they tasted it, they didn't have to hold their breath. They could sip it. They didn't have to make it disappear in a margarita, even though it's a very good margarita, okay? They knew this was high end. If they put some Patron with ice, 
drinking it neat, it's like any experience, and it's not like any experience they've had. It's like, wow, this is really good stuff. It's more of a connoisseur. And then they, if, unless they drank, you know, way too much, they didn't get the same hangover the next day they were normally used to. And it was like, wow, this is pretty cool stuff. What quality we are ready to treat ourselves. And people started treating themselves, which meant that they got whatever nice little buzz they wanted, maybe drank a little less, and were, were more conscientious. Instead of putting the shots away, they were more conscientious and delicate on the way they drank. Uh, I was talking to one of your friends who told me you spend probably 90% of your uh, time that's devoted towards business on uh, Paul Mitchell. Uh, but how does the financial success that y you've had with that compared to that of Patron? Well, my success with Patron is quite obvious. You know, it's, of course, it far exceeds Paul Mitchell or anything else that I have. But when you say that, the majority of time I spend, you know, with them, it's actually a little less than that. But we have to realize the majority of my time is spent in philanthropy. And then when I spend time with Paul Mitchell or with Patron, or even John Paul Pett, it's usually dealing with a management seminar that I might hold, kind of overseeing something, because I am the chairman of the board of both companies at that capacity, or incorporating good people benefits with philanthropy all at one time. Uh, family, uh, you've said in the past that you have regrets as a father, as a husband, sure. uh, like what? Well, one regret is, but I didn't know any better. I was a kid. I had a child when I was a child. So I didn't spend that much time with my first child because I was working all the time. And you realize that extra importance. We spent time together. You know, we'd go fishing up at Tritesdale or somewhere. I'd bring Melovins with me. But it would have been nice if I would have segregated a little bit more time to have a little more family time. When I started Paul Mitchell, I was all over the place all the time. I spent, still spent some time with my daughter and then daughters. But I was still on the road a whole lot. But I spent more time with them then. I think I'd go back. I would have spent a little more time with my oldest son now in those days and somehow found a way to do it had I had realized that because time goes by very, very fast. Uh, so you've been married to the, the same beautiful lady, Eloise, uh, for a long time. Um, but before that, you were married uh, three times. For all the wrong reasons. Uh, I was going to say, what, like, when you've been divorced already three times, um, why try again? Well, it was for all the wrong reasons. When I was young, she was just the prettiest girl in the world, right? You know, and you know, 19 years old, 20 years old, you just go for the hottest looking girl. At least that's what I was brought up. I didn't look for anything else. And, and she was, but, it, but nothing else worked. I didn't know any better. You know, I would have been a better husband as I looked for the right thing in life, but I didn't know any better. My second wife, very lovely lady at the time. But, you know, there were things that we didn't match up. I didn't know any better. I just didn't know any better. Uh, the third one, uh, very, very nice lady, but we weren't compatible in all the ways we should be compatible. It was very, very short term. But in those days, if I went out with you, in many cases, I ended up marrying you. It was just one of those things. I didn't <laughs> take my time. And I'd taken my time, I think, and probably whether I'd made the same decision or with somebody else, it probably would have been a better one. Sometimes you just don't know, but as time goes on, you know. Outside of um, looking for something different, I come the fourth time, was there anything you did differently? Uh, yeah, I was a lot more mature my next time around, a lot more mature, where I was looking for, you know, what am I, what, what am I looking for in a relationship? And I was a little more defined at that time. And I actually even wrote out a list of, you know, what, what I'd want in somebody. And, and uh, El Eloise is just a, a gem, and she's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Yeah, and the list, uh, 
you're in your Porsche driving with Eloise, uh, and you end up showing her. Well, list. it wasn't quite. She says it wasn't the Porsche. It wasn't. It was a. I think <laughs> she a, tells it as a romantic said, story. Yeah, I'm she, like, yeah, is yeah, it well, romantic? I, it was no more. I think I, I showed it at my house at the time. She okay. said, "No, it's in your car." I said, "Well, okay." I kind of remember in my car or in my, the house. Where I sat down. And I said, "Here's a lot of things looking for a lady." And by the way, I don't know everything in life, but there's a couple of things you have that aren't even on my list, you know. And I, I, I let her know that she was, she was a good lady. Uh, tell about the blind date. She was a blind date. No, I. Uh, I'd been single for quite a while at that time, and all my friends, and I'd started making some money, so I had a nice car, and nice house, and all my friends hooked me up with everyone you can imagine. Many of them were actresses, and with all due respect and kindness, and they were very well-known actresses and wonderful, but we just didn't jive, uh, and a few of the top models. Uh, anyway, so after a while, uh, I was just really picky. If I went out with somebody for the first time, I'd have breakfast with them, because that was safe. You didn't have to kiss them goodnight, you know, it was safe, who knew? Uh, anyways, this lady who wrote children's books called me one day. I met her one time, and she called me after that and said, I met this young lady named Eloise that I think you'll really, really, really get along with. You guys will really hit it off well. I said, okay. I said, what does she do for a living? Well, she's a, she's a model actress. Nope, nope, nope. Had enough of those. You know, just call her. And Eloise had met her one time, so we talked over the phone, and uh, she's like a wonderful person. And I didn't know what she looked like or anything. And... Uh, I picked her up for brunch. It was safe brunch, right? Never saw her. Pulled up and all of a sudden, whoa, yeah, she's a beautiful girl, right? I didn't know that at all. It was just a nice person. So uh, we got in the car to go to brunch, and she started to tell me how six months prior, this mutual friend of ours, Ron Semler, and his wife wanted to introduce us, but told her, no, he's gone. There's no way you're going to get this guy. He's gone, right? So we said, forget brunch. Let's go up and see Ron. And I had a bottle of Patron in the back seat. And she didn't know, because she didn't know me at the time, or at least I don't think she did, right? She said she did it, right? But uh, I believe her. But she, I don't know if she thought I was an alcoholic. I was carrying this bottle of Patron <laughs> and went to Ron's house with her and brought the bottle of Patron. And then, of course, she realized on the company. Uh, how did you propose? I proposed to her by uh, you know, sending her just a load of flowers and asking her. And then would, some. Oh, yeah, well, a whole bunch of flowers. She lived in an apartment uh, at that time. And I just I filled her apartment with roses and asked her if uh, yeah, she'd marry me. And, and literally filled the yeah, apartment filled the with roses, yeah. right? Yeah, you remember how many roses you got? Oh, I think there was uh, 1,300. She was born on the 13th, and we're 13 years apart, so it was very easy. Did tell about uh, who sang at and who catered your wedding. Well, the wedding was when I had nothing, and I've got to take my hats off to a lot of great people out there. When I had absolutely nothing, some superstars were my pals because we just liked each other. One was Roger Daltrey, as in The Who. So when I got married, Roger Daltrey's gift was he flew in from England with the band, and they played our wedding. They brought along Extreme, which was a really hot group uh, at the time. Gary, he came and played. and. Uh, uh, a dear friend of ours brought Cher with her, and Cher got so excited, she got on stage and sang, and the great Millie Kaiserman got on stage and sang, and before you knew it, you had all these superstars at our wedding with 500 people on stage singing. It was very, very nice. It was quite an event. Cher, The Who, and then uh, Wolfgang Puck. Oh, Wolf, well, Wolfgang Puck and John Settler catered the whole thing for us, and these guys gave their time as a gift. I paid for the food, but as a gift, they gave their time, which is very nice. I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Describe the actual home in which you grew up in. Where I grew up at 1522 and a half Scott Avenue, Los Angeles, California, in Echo Park, was up a hill, little driveway. It was a court with three houses in front, three houses in back. It was very, very small. 
you could fit the whole house into this room, just this room we're in, and have more room. It was one bedroom, very small, one little kitchen, one little living room. Uh, and we had a little uh, lawn, it's not there anymore, they're cemented over. It was a very simple way of life, but we didn't know any better. We thought we had everything. It was very simple, and, uh, but we enjoyed it. We had a lot of love for my mom. How painful was it for your mom uh, realizing that she needed to put you and your brother in a foster home during the week? Yeah, very painful, but she got so sick and was unable to take care of us with no, we had a deadbeat dad who took off, so uh, she had no choice. Uh, her Greek club, the daughters of philanthropy, try to help out as much as they can, but four and a half years old, someone's gotta take care of us in it. So from five to nine and a half, we were in a foster home during the week while my mom worked, she worked. That's how she supported, she worked. There was no income coming in. And then we'd be with her on the weekends. Oh, it killed her. She tried to do, she would save up so we'd have a little teeny weeny piece of steak, for example. We'd all have a bite of it so we could know what a steak was like. She was the most wonderful mom on the planet. And then when I was nine and a half, my brother was 11, she said, boys, you're old enough now, you can take care of yourselves, you're coming home. And we did. How did you find out initially that you were going to need to go to a foster home during the week? My mom told us. Okay. She says, boys, there's gonna be some people, some other kids are gonna take care of you because, and she explained to us, I have to work so we could eat. Oh, mom, we don't wanna leave, we go to work with you. Boys, you can't, you're too young, you gotta go to school. You know, we, we were upset, obviously. We cried, she cried, we all cried together. It was a very sad moment. What do you remember from the actual experience of being in a foster home during the week? Oh, I remember everything. I can remember even when we left the house, the lady put us in the car, went back, gave something to my mom. My brother and I jumped out of the car, ran back to the house, we got back in the car. We arrived at the back driveway, uh, this Hispanic people, uh, a couple met us, and they were, they were nice to us. And I remember everything. I mean, I could tell you what we have for breakfast every morning, oatmeal, and it was watered down, by the way. Her salad at night was a piece of lettuce with a little bit of mayonnaise that we were good on. It was very, very humble. They didn't go overboard for us at all. They gave us a minimal amount of things. Uh, uh, and I remember all that. My brother and I shared a bed together, and you know, he went to the local church and the local community because we were forced to every morning, uh, every Sunday morning. But we had a good time because there were other kids there we could talk to and hang out with. Uh, you were apparently in a gang. Yeah, um, we, we had a little street gang called the Pink Rats. What type of trouble would you get into? Well, little, not too bad. We all had in those days because they would sell them up to two inches push button knives. A two inch plate's that big. So we're seven years old, we all had push button knives. Some of us stole them from the local store, others saved up, you know, their money and for two dollars bought a little push button knives. So we our little gang, the pink rats, had push button knives and we'd have jackets and we would paint on a little pink rat. Didn't look that cool, but we thought we were badass, right? And we go around showing our push button knives. We never stabbed anybody. We never got in a fight with anybody with those knives. We were getting some fights with kids, but they're just fist fights. We weren't what they do today where you go out shooting and stabbing people, not at all. Why did your father leave? My father was a deadbeat dad. We just, he just happened to end up with a deadbeat dad. That happens in life. And your dad was a mechanic, I believe. He was a mechanic. I believe there were at least three occasions you saw him, once when you were 12, another time when you were uh, 20, another time uh, shortly before he uh, passed away. But those first two experiences when you were 12 and 20, what did those entail? Uh, went up to visit him in San Rafael, California, where he lived. On a, on a ranch up there, he was still a mechanic, and his wife at the time was uh, working at some glass factory. And uh, it was okay for the first week, and then my dad just basically became a real ass, just a real ass, yelling at my brother and I for nothing. He was an alcoholic too, though, unfortunately. And we were out of there, we just left, went back home. What were the circumstances that led 
you guys to going in the first place? Well, we want to see our dad again. My mom thought it's time. Let's find him. You should at least meet your dad. My mom was had a, the biggest heart in the world, no matter what an ass he was. She had the biggest heart in the world. Guys, you should at least meet your father, and that didn't go over well at all. And, and so that was 12 uh, when 12, you saw him again? 13 years old, exactly. When you saw him again at 20? Yeah, um, my, I was in my early 20s, and my brother and I just went to San Francisco together. Well, so we could look up the dad, and we did. Looked him up and, you know, sat and chatted with him a little bit, and, uh, you know, that was the extent of it. How did it go? It went okay. How you doing? Everything's great. We both have good jobs. He called us uh, about a month later and wanted to borrow $2,000 from us. And he had told us how he had this trust, why he never gave my mother money, because he put all this money in this trust for us. And when we were 35 years old, we all got the trust. So when he called us, my brother and I were pretty smart. When he called us a uh, short time later, I was with my brother at the time at his house uh, for 2,000 bucks. And we were pretty sharp kids. So I looked at my brother and I said, trust? He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, Dad, we're going to give you 10,000. Oh, boys, I love you. I said, if you need two, Dad, we're going to give you 10. And, and you know, you're going to get to keep it. Oh, we love you. You're the best boys in the world. Oh, great. We said, yeah, take it out of our trust. We're going to okay it. Phone went silent, never heard from him again. Then I looked him up again, you know, when, many, many years ago. Uh, and of course, he was in his 70s and dying. He was an alcoholic and had cancer. What do you remember from that experience? Sorry, experience. I uh, went up there to see him. He lived in this little shed. Uh, with his wife and about 50 cats in a little space. I couldn't believe how many cats and doo-doo was there. And he was sitting there, looked terrible, drinking wine and water mixed together. And I asked him, I said, you know, you're my father and you look terrible. I said, you know, even though I have no emotional feelings for you, because you've never been there, you know, there's no emotion, but you're biologically my dad. I'm doing pretty good in life now. Uh, can I send you to a hospital or what can we do? He says, nope, it's too late. It's like a movie. I said, well, my mother is still ballroom dancing, and you are dying. Why? He says, two packs of cigarettes and a pint of cheap whiskey every day, throat cancer. And that was it. You know, no emotion, no nothing. And I left. And then I got a call from Myrtle sometime later saying, your, your dad died. How did you take it? Fine. He died, he died. You know, there's, there was no emotion there. People died. Any resentment? None, none whatsoever. My mom was a great mom. She kind of took the place of both. I have no resentment whatsoever. Uh, one of your friends told me that even though you were only separated um, by a couple years uh, with your brother Bobby, that in a way your friend thought that he filled some sort of void that was left by your father. Um, what do you think? Oh, no doubt. Because, you know, Bob was always there. He was an older brother. I could go to him for advice. I never thought of it as going to him as a father for advice. He's my older brother. And he was always there. He was cool. How do you think he influenced you? Oh, he definitely influenced me, my God. He's the first one getting to motorcycles, and uh, he would be one that you know, would kind of stray me in the right direction. I remember once uh, our little teeny gang was going to get into a gang fight with another little teeny gang, and my brother showed up. He was much taller than all of us, and when he showed up was the end of the fight. The other guys ran away. So that was pretty good. No one got hit. <laughs> How did you find out about the accident? I, I got a phone call. 
they, they, they ran me down the, uh, and, and said, you know, uh, are you Johnny Jury? I said, yes, okay, we have Robert Anthony D. Juria here, uh, and he's in critical shape. We're down here at this hospital in Santa Monica. You better get down here. So I immediately went down there to see what was happening, immediately. And his wife had found out about it at the time, and she had joined me down there, and he was in critical care. He got in a very bad motorcycle accident, and they didn't have helmets in those days, and he flew off, he just freak accident, hit his head against a wall, and uh, uh, ended up killing him. It was unfortunate. You were the most positive person ever. Everybody that knows you always says that. How do you recover from that? You never recover from something like that. If you lost a child or a brother or a sister or someone you're very close, you don't really recover. I mean, you go on with your life. You don't recover from not remembering. You always remember them and some of the good things you had together. Did it affect me at all? Yeah, losing my brother, when you lose something, there's something that just sticks with you in your heart, like a little piece of you goes. You know, and, and, and I still think about him on, on different occasions when I'm doing something. What makes you think about him? Oh, I could be riding my motorcycle, for example. Boy, would Bobby really like me, you know, doing this with me. That would be really cool. And he was already a huge success. Yeah, I, I mean, very I, success. I think he um, was really doing well in uh, printing. Um, he started photocopy machines uh, for four cents a copy. He's the one that started. He rented a Xerox machine. They wouldn't let you buy it. would rent it. And then I think he would pay a half a cent a copy. And for four cents a copy, right in the middle of Beverly Hills, got a little store. He would do it for all these attorneys, make all their copies. In those days, you either had to lease this giant machine, but he leased it, but for many people, so it made sense. Why do you think two kids that grew up poor as could be became so successful? I would say, first of all, define success. To me, success is not how much money you have or how powerful you are. Success is how well do you do what you do. Growing up, my mom would make sure one week I'd sweep the floors, the other week my brother would do the dishes, and we'd switch. And she'd go checking things out. You didn't move this, you didn't clean this right. We learned how to do a job really, really well. So automatically, we had a job. We did the best we could, even when nobody else was looking. It was just how my mom brought us up. And she was positive. Guys, you can do anything you want to do. Just do it, do it, do it. Okay, so I'm going to talk momentarily about material wealth and then get into uh, charity. Um, uh, why were you so, um, maybe frustrated is the wrong word, uh, why were you so bothered uh, when you found out Forbes was adding you to the list of billionaires? Well, a lot of people associate success with how much money you have, or if you're like a billionaire over here, okay, then maybe you're something different than everybody else. So when I started making money, it was like, well, you know what, uh, how about we don't talk about what I have, what I do with what I have. And you'll sometimes realize I got a whole bunch of money, you know, but I do good things with it. I didn't mind that at all. So when people call me, for and, example. And you've earned it. Oh, I've earned yeah. it. And I, and, and I help others too along the way. Right. But then, so if you take a look, Bloomberg, I think, has me at 5.2 billion. I think uh, Forbes has me at 3.2 or 3.4 billion. Someone else has me at six and a half billion, okay? And main reason is I won't tell anybody anything. And if I went to Steve Forbes one day, because I know Steve. What? I said, Steve, get me off the list. I can't do it, JP. <laughs> he says, can you just tell people what we have? At least we'll, we'll get you up there. I said, I don't want to get up there. I want to get off your list. You can't do it. Uh, have you gone about deciding uh, where you want to have homes? Well, the home thing came about where I bought a house that was great. And then I moved someplace else and I bought a place there. But each time I bought a place, the people that would take care of it were so nice. 
that I, I didn't want to get rid of them. And I was doing really well, so I thought, well, in my own mind was, I would just keep the money in real estate and it would grow and it'd be like a future profit thing for me. And if I get something else, I'd like the people again. I didn't want to get rid of them. And then once I, or twice I bought a house because it was such a good deal. But then the people take care of was so nice. And then you would only grow. It drove me nuts, okay? Like right oh, now, oh, really? I was like, what am I doing this? I mean, that's where, am I out of my mind? But I realized, no. I love these people, I could afford it, and the, the land appreciates anyways, the house appreciates, so I'm just gonna do this longer. Uh, all right, so how many homes? Uh, more than one. <laughs> more than more one. Than one. Um, how, how about um, your favorite destinations where you have homes? Uh, some of my favorite are Hawaii. I have a home that I built in Bali in Hawaii, and I love that very, very, very much. Uh, obviously, here in Austin, I'm right here on the Kalo River. I love this place. I, I like my Malibu house a, a whole lot. So explain the design intricacies and the extent of your involvement in designing some of your homes. Sure. My house in Hawaii is a Balinese house. I was in Bali with my friend Paul Mitchell many, many years back, about a year before he died, two years before he died, we were there together. And I met this fellow there who worked with people in the interior of Bali, way back in the jungles, that built these temples and houses. They lived on dirt floors. They were really nice people. And I thought, you know, there's this little place in Hawaii that I'm buying this, this land that was up for sale. And I started making some money right on the water. Uh, and it was just a couple lots down from where my friend Paul had bought a, a piece of land there in a little house. And I said, you know what? I have this little house. I love a Balinese house. So I said, guys, so we got pencils out. We kind of designed a little bit there. And then they took over. What do you want? And so forth. Then they would mail to me at the time, back and forth, pictures of how it came along. They take snapshots of it. So they were 90% of how the house came out, 10% me. But it's a Balinese house and it's so cool. It's like, uh, to me, it's one of the coolest houses on the planet. Okay, wait, how, how do you build the house in Bali and get it to Hawaii? Very simple. We built it in Bali. They, arrest, they erected it with wooden pegs, numbered every single piece, took it down, wrapped it, put on a barge to Jakarta, by ship to Hilo, by truck to the Kona side. I brought over 30 Balinese carpenters. I got permits for every one of them, paid them the same as American carpenters were paid. I want everyone to get paid equal. They went back the equivalent of a millionaire, even though it wasn't a million dollars. They and 50 American carpenters, it took them two years to put this house back up again. They'd all did it by numbers, like the bridge has so many numbers, under B bridge, bridge one, bridge two, right? It was all put up by numbers. They put it up by each piece was numbered. Plus the Balinese who built it, 30 of them were over there. 280 built it, by the way, 280 Balinese, but 30 came over to resurrect it again. I think you have three uh, planes of your own. Um, how key is private travel to uh, your life now? I couldn't travel the way I do, whether it's for business or philanthropy, if I didn't have a private jet. There's no way I could do it. And the only reason I have three private jets right now is one is more of a long-range jet, which I haven't used that much, so we lease it out during the year. The other one they use all the time is one I use all the time. My third jet, which is a smaller jet, one of the first ones I got, the market right now sucks. It's at a bottom, so if I sold it, I'd lose too much money. So my partner and I are just sitting on it. We've been sitting on it for a few years, hoping it's gonna come around and we can at least break even on it. But we may have to sell it a loss. I want you to take us back to a moment when you and your brother are just boys and you're in front of the Salvation Army and your mom hands you a dime. My mom said, guys, here's a dime, boys. 
We had little fingers, hold this time, go over and put in that bucket with the man ringing the bell. And we did. Came back and asked her why. I mean, this is the early 50s at the time. And at that time, a dime is like two big soda pops or three candy bars. And we told her that. She said, boys, it's Salvation Army. They take care of people that don't have any food or places to live. And, uh, you know, there's always going to be someone that has less than you. And we can't afford any more. But what we could afford to do is give them a dime this year. We try and do something. That's all we could afford, but we gave. If everybody gave a little something, it could change the world. And obviously that stuck with me. Very giving, loving mom. Success unshared is failure. That's right. And that came out of my mom before I even knew those words. And I'm still involved. In fact, I am a large contributor and helped build a few kitchens and other rooms here for the local Salvation Army. And just a short time ago, I flew back to Los Angeles, uh, where it was the place where I put the first dime in downtown. I flew to Skid Row down there with the Salvation Army and held a little show for everybody down there on you can succeed and you come from homeless to doing something in life. And I acted with them. And needless to say, when I was with the Salvation Army, I just, uh, I gave them a hell of a lot more than a dime. Grow Appalachia. How did it start? I was looking for ways to help my people in my country. I help people all over the world, but I want to do something big for the United States. Tommy Callahan is a man that worked for me. He's from the Hollers of Appalachia. He said, JP, the people in Appalachia, there's about 150,000 of them all through the seven states where Appalachia is. And they're homeless. I know this Subria College that I work with. And JP, if you want to do anything, let's help these people feed themselves. Ah, great idea. So I went and met with a lot of groups and I like the people at Brea College. So I said, guys, I'll do this. I'll provide the seeds, the equipment, the fertilizer, and the irrigation. And let's go out there to communities and show them how to garden for themselves. Number one was you feed yourself and you put everything away in jars for the winter. So year round, you have vegetables to eat. And then later we'll get you chickens and eggs. You got eggs. So now you could eat good food. Second year, you grow more. You sell the excess to local grocery stores for organically owned produce and organically grown produce or to farmer's markets, now you have an income. When you make enough money to be able to feed yourself, have some extra, take those food stamps, send it back to the federal government with a note. And that note should say on it, do not put this back in the treasury. I want you to deduct my food stamps and I'm not gonna take any more from the national deficit. Uh, in fact, I met with, uh, unfortunately, people with the Obama administration before his second reelection because I was on TV talking about the government's not doing enough. And back in Washington, D.C., I met at the executive offices with two people that he brought to meet with me. All about JP, we're gonna work with you on this one, don't you worry about it, Michelle's in the gardening, we're gonna do it, we're gonna get everybody together, JP, I saw you on TV, we have an election coming up. Next time you go on TV, the Obama administration is working with you, we're all gonna get together, and this is a group. Yay, I was so excited, my God, this is going, it's working great. Never heard from them again. It was an election tactic. And I called them after the election. No one ever called me back. And you know, so that's why people realize, and I'm not disrespecting any president. I'm sure each president has their own not so good things that we don't like. Some things we like, they're people, they're humans, okay? But I realize more and more that government helps out a bit, okay? But the private sector, is the, are the people that make the giant moves, whether it's for animals like what the Sea Shepherd does or for people like me and others do. It's that private sector that makes the biggest change. How did uh, casino mogul billionaire Steve Wynn get you involved with the Sea Shepherd? Steve Wynn 
is one of the greatest human beings and people don't know it. He called me one day, maybe 30 years ago, we were friends and said, John Paul, you're gonna meet this guy, Paul Watts, I'm gonna introduce you, he's the greatest guy. I have a show here where I have animals on it and he brought me in and showed me about dolphins and how to protect them. JP, you're into this stuff, you gotta get together with them. And I did and he was right and Paul and I became the best of friends and we've supported the Sea Shepherd ever since. Why did you decide to make a last-minute commercial change on Larry King Live? This was going back uh, during the Obama administration. I had learned through Pierce Brosnan and Keeley, his wife, that Obama's administration had representatives going to a conference in North Africa to drop the moratorium they had on killing so many whales, period. We were gonna pull out because Japan was very pissed off at the Sea Shepherd. I happened to have a commercial running for Paul Mitchell that night on that program, and it was already set up to run. I talked to Pierce and Keeley. They made a public service announcement saying, Mr. President Obama, you promised you would help the whales, you would help out. Keep your promise, Mr. Obama. Your administration's going in to lift this moratorium so the Japanese can kill more wells, which is illegal anyways. You're gonna make it more legal for political reasons. Don't do it. Beautiful PSA they did, right? Some of the local stations showed that that was it. I saw it, I said, uh-uh, this is going on TV. I got it, put in the hands of my public relations department and waited till two hours before everything closed in New York where the headquarters was. We immediately switched commercials out, took my Paul Mitchell commercial out and put it in. It was a PSA, they didn't mind, nobody checked it out, right? It was shown in Washington DC, but that night, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones was a person being interviewed. Everybody in Washington DC saw that. And we got back the next day through Paul Watson and Pierce and Keeley. JP, we got this information back to the NRDC and all these other good groups that you support. It was the talk of Washington. End result was they were very embarrassed. They delayed another year the talks. How did that impact your view of Obama? Well, I am a person that doesn't like to put anybody down. So let me tell you my reaction, better yet opposed to my view on him. The worst thing you could ever do is separate Americans and 99% versus the 1% and that was during the Obama administration. And I told everybody that's wrong. That's separating people, the rich against the poor. Isn't it the American dream for everybody to own a house? Isn't the American dream for everyone to have a chance at being a millionaire? It's the American dream. You separate the 99% from the 1%, they're bad guys, we're good guys. You're destroying America and the American dream. People don't listen, it's not right. The giving pledge. Why decide to commit? A couple years ago, maybe four years ago, uh, I got a call from Warren Buffett's office saying, JP, you live in Austin, are you there? I said, yeah. They said, well, the night after next, uh, we're gonna be in Dallas and Bill Gates and I wanna invite you to a dinner with 15 people. We're not gonna hit you up for anything. We just wanna let you know what we're doing and who knows, one day you may wanna be part of it, you may not wanna be part of it. So I flew up there with my wife and we had dinner with them, wonderful people. They told us about the giving pledge. I thought, my God, I'm doing that already. I thought, I want to be part of what you guys are doing. They say, JP, we'd love you to be part of what we're doing. And the giving pledge is basically that you pledge, that you will do things in your life, while you're alive and after you die, where half of your wealth goes to making the planet a better place to live. And it could be for anything. Because we realize, at least I realize, and I think Paul Watson said this the best, we're on a 
spaceship that's gone through the universe, as we use it up, the spaceship is smaller and more decayed for our children in the future. Well, shouldn't those on the spaceship right now living a halfway decent life bring the ship back to life again? That's what we do with the Giving Pledge. We're all thankful in such a big way for how blessed we are with what we have financially, that it's our obligation. In fact, I think it's the obligation of every person, every city, every state, every corporation to do something to make someone else's life better with your own time. If you could do it financially on top of it, better yet, especially if you're not wasting the money. And most of the people, the Giving Pledge, they, we go to courses, classes they hold when we meet every, t- every year a couple of times on to make sure the money's going to the people or to the environment or to the animals or the cause and not all going to fundraisers. And unfortunately, a lot of charities, a lot of money goes to the fundraising and very little to charity. Set the scene uh, and tell a little bit about what it entails when all members of the Giving Pledge get together? Very powerful. When you walk in a room with a Giving Pledge, people, first thing you feel is a lot of love. There's a lot of harmony and love because every one of them is doing something to do something for somebody or something else that doesn't benefit them one bit other than they know they're doing it and it makes them feel good. So they're all feeling good. And they're great, all interesting stories, how they got involved in giving. Uh, Very few of them have been born into wealth. Okay, most of them kind of created on their own. How, how often do you meet? Uh, minimum once a year. Everyone minimum once a year. But there's a couple years, a couple opportunities. We we, we do it uh, very sensitively because we don't want all the press around there and everybody there. So we're kind of confidential on some of the stuff we do. Uh, um, anything like noteworthy that happens at the meetings outside of? you know, some of what you were already talking about. But we get to share what we do. We get to share what we do, how we do it, have the best lunches, dinners, and breakfasts, and wine you could ever imagine. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So it's a good, it's a good experience. Explain your connection to North Korea and how its then-leader ended up tracking you down in Vienna. In 1994, towards the latter part of the year, I had just finished up doing a one-month interview with Beverly Shook of CNN on Pinnacle. I was in... Vienna, Austria at the time, it was shown around the world. While I was there, I got a phone call, and I'll tell you how it all came to be. George Lee, who's my distributor for South Korea for Paul Mitchell, was in Peking, which now is Beijing, on his own, doing business, and was drinking at a bar. Next to him was a table of Koreans drinking and talking in Korean and laughing, and these guys could drink. He went and joined them and drank with them. Turned out to be North Korean intelligence. And they asked George, he said, you know what, we're looking for an American to help us develop industrially. Do you know anybody? George said, oh my God, John Paul is the nicest guy in the reason he wants to help the world out. Oh, he'd probably want to help your old country out. I'll ask him, yeah, send us a letter. So he got a hold of me and uh, uh, I had uh, contacted our State Department and I you know, asked uh, if I could write a letter, and they laughed, and they said, JP, we did a little research on this. There's 100 people they're trying to get. You know, They're never going to pick you. Number two, you can't do any trade with them because of the trade embargoes we have with them, but you could write the letter, no big deal. They're never going to pick you. Okay. So I write them a letter. Dear Kim Jong-il, okay, I'd be very happy to come and visit your country and help you industrialize with uh, the environment in mind and ecology in mind, and they have to drop the trade. 
barriers. Okay, but if they'll let us do that, I'll help you develop your whole country as long as we do the ecology in mind, you know, peace, love, and happiness, John Paul de Joria, blah, 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 sent the letter. Never heard a word from them. Now I believe it's getting into 1995. All of a sudden this call comes through. Pro Yang called Beijing, who got a hold of the United States, who got a hold of George Lee, who found me, bing, 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 bing. And we were watching it on TV there, right? It was one around the world. They said, you're not gonna believe this. Kim Jong-il was watching CNN International, probably the only guy they got to see it in North Korea, close society, right? And said, that's the guy. That's, that's one of the guys that sent the letter. You know, the next thing I knew, bingo, I had an invitation to go into North Korea and bring anybody with me. So I brought my daughter with me, thought it'd be a good time. My wife at the time thought my daughter and I need some bonding, let's go over together, and we did. And uh, we were the guest of Kim Jong-il there. Of course, we were escorted everywhere. Turned out the guy who escorted us would have intelligence, uh, you know, for North Korea. They treated us really good. Let me ask any questions I wanted to ask, which I did. Uh, some of the answers were unbelievable, but they still answered them for me. And uh, they treated us properly. I didn't like what I saw there. Very controlled country. Every intersection in the country had someone with a rifle on it. Uh, you could talk to the local people, and they'd tell you that the last leader built the entire dam there, which you know that engineers have got to do it. So, so they're very dedicated people to their philosophy and God. They don't believe in God as we do. God is their government. God is their leader. So Kim Il-jong to Kim Jong-il to now the gentleman that's there, kind of strange, okay? But uh, they're fully controlled, a fully controlled environment, so controlled, it, it's sad. Well, I, after I left in 1996, I wanted to get them into four-way talks. They only wanted talks with the United States, China, and North Korea. They said South Korea was a puppet. They didn't want to get into those talks. So I befriended them. I sent over, they were having a famine. Two million of the 23 million North Koreans died that year of starvation. I heard that South Korea sent a, a boat of rice in there, but because South Korea was on there, they refused it. They didn't want anyone to know in North Korea they were getting food from South Korea. They let two million people die sick. So I sent over, and I worked with people in Michigan. I sent over 10,000 pounds of vegetable seeds. You can't sell them, you can't steal, you gotta give it to the people to help out. Well, we, we got into a dialogue. Very long story short, and I won't go into the details right now, I helped them get into four-way talks. For now, South Korea, North Korea, the United States, and China got in those talks. I worked with the State Department a little bit in Washington, D.C. I kept a very, very low key on this whole thing, very, very low key, never mentioned it, never said a word about it until in these last couple of years, I could talk about it now because enough time has lapsed so I could talk about it. But it, I, I gave a helping hand. What interaction did you have with Kim Jong-il? I think right now the best thing to do is just to let it go at that. Okay, you got a, you got a story, no one else got the story here. And the next time we talk, we'll talk about Libya and how we released the two suspected terrorists of Pan Am Flight 103 when the government couldn't do it, but a businessman could. We'll talk about that next time, your next show. <laughs> All right, Business so. people can do more for this planet, in my opinion, that have a good heart and want nothing in return. Like I turned down $50 million, want nothing in return to make the world a better place. So I think the government, no disrespect, should sometimes use business people who have the right motivation and want nothing in return but to help the planet out. Thank you very much. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash GrahamBensinger for hours of extra content. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.